Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church Conway. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. Thanks for listening. If you have your Bible, Luke 10. My friend Sam Rayner, he's a pastor in, uh, in Florida. And he told me one day when he first started his pastor, the very first day of his very first pastor, in his very first office, he set it all up. And then he said, he sat there in his office, he put his little books out, you know, and, and uh, he's older than me. So he, he set his Rolodex out and stuff like that. And, uh, and then he stands back and he, he's going to watch this later and get mad at that. But he's, he stands back and he goes, well, then what now? He said, he said that out loud. He's like, well, what do I do now? You know, I'm, an, I'm now a pastor. What do you do? And so he asked his dad. He called his dad, who's a long-term pastor, and asked him, he said, hey, what do I do now? His dad says, well, call me back in a week. And if in a week you are still feeling like you have nothing to do, then, then we can come up with some plans. But he said, until then, go and hang out with some people. Sam told me that later that day he did, and it started getting busy, and he has been busy ever since. In a couple decades of ministry, he has been busy ever since. And you know, that, that's just sort of the way that works. You don't have to be a pastor to be in some of those situations in which you feel kind of like, so what now? What do I do now? You know, like, I think of the people who graduate college. They've been students their whole lives. Since they were like four, they've been going to class and homework and all that kind of stuff. And they walk across the stage there and they're like, well, what now? What do I do now? You know, is this, what was that? What was I doing? You know, or, or maybe if you, you get married, that, that's a fun thing. You know, like Bailey, they are going to do that. That's a fun thing. You plan it and all that kind of stuff. And then you're like, what now? Or maybe you, maybe you don't plan it. Maybe you meet somebody on Friday. You drive to the Las Vegas of our area, Branson, and you get married and, um, and then, then you're like, you know, well, what now? I mean, I know, I know there's some activities, but after that, you know, it's like, well, what do we do now, you know? And so that's a thing. You buy a house, you get a house, and it's like 30 days to close. It took you like two weeks to find one. You debated it, you got it. You got your couch in the perfect spot. Your, your, your pictures are hung. The boxes are, are all broken down and in recycling in your new recycling bin that you have because you bought a house. But then you're like, well, what now? What do we do now? How do you, you, we're living in our house, you know? It just kind of feels like, what are we doing here? And what's going on? Or a child, your very first child. You bring that home, you set it there. <laughs> you look at each other, you're like, what do we do with it? You know, it's play, you know, or something, you know. Guess we should start saving for college. That kind of thing. I've talked to folks before and they're like, they retire. They get to that thing, they get retired, and there's a cake, and everybody's excited, you know, and then the next day they wake up and they're like, I got nothing to do. I literally have no, what do, what do I do now? In Luke, we are introduced to this guy who has a similar sort of uh, crisis of to-do list. He doesn't know exactly what to do now. He, he, he's come to this step, and in fact, Scripture's going to define him as an expert, but then he wants to know, well, what do I do now? Let's look at this verse here. It says, Luke 10, 25. This is what the Word of God says. It says, Then an expert—look, I get to do stuff like this now. Then an expert in the law stood up to—and this is going to be an important part—test him, saying, Teacher, what must I do? 
do is going to be huge in the whole text. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus responds the way that Jesus often responds. He responds to a question with a question. Well, what's written in the law, Jesus says? You're an expert. You're a lawyer. What's written in the law? And he asked him, how do you read it? A couple of things there. This expert is literally an expert. He is extremely familiar. He's got most of the first five books of the Bible memorized. You know the part that like when you start in January and you're like, I'm going to read my whole Bible. And then you get into those five books and you're like, I'm going to read the New Testament. You know, and you jump over to that side. He's got that part memorized. He knows everything that's going on in there. And then he also has all of this, like uh, what these rabbis throughout thousands of years have taught about that part. He's got that memorized. He's an expert, a literal expert, a PhD in law of the Old Testament. He knows his Bible better than we know our Bible. And it's important for you to understand that he has devoted himself to God through the memorization of God's laws. That's important. And it says that he stood up to test him. Testing him is a loaded word. When, when the Bible says to test him, it, it could be that he's, he's trying to trick him. And I think there's some of that in there for sure. But I think there's also this element in which he wants to actually know. A better way for us to understand this is if we were going to say that word, we would say he stood up to debate him. He wants to beat Jesus in the mind games and in the arguments, but he also really wants to get at the truth. He wants their two minds to come together and really kind of hear this story. I believe this expert comes to Jesus to sort of trick him, but deep down in his heart of hearts, he wants to know, man, I really want to know the answer to this question. I really want to know, what must I do? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And like I said, Jesus responds to him, responds to this debate with another question. He says, well, you're an expert. Well, you're an expert at the law. What does the law say? What is it that you are supposed to be doing? And the man responds. He answers Jesus' question, and he says, well— This is what the Bible says. This is how he would have thought it. This is what the law says. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your strength, and your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. That's what you're supposed to—that's what the law says. And Jesus responds, you've answered correctly. That's the right answer. Jesus says, that's exactly right. But then listen to this different. He told him, he says, do this and you will live. Love God and love people and you will live. Here's my problem with that. Is Jesus right? Jesus says the guy is right, but is Jesus right? In order to go to heaven, if you've been in church, if you've been in church for any amount of time, in order to go to heaven, what is it you are supposed to do? What are the good works you are supposed to accomplish? What is the righteousness that you are supposed to amass for yourself? What is all the good things that will outweigh the other things? Because if I'm reading what Jesus just said— and I walk away from this thinking, you know what? I can, I can earn eternal life. I can be good enough to outweigh the bad. And that's really the question because if you've grown up in church, if you've been around church, if you've read your Bible, is that the case? No, that's not the case. That's not the answer. You can't do anything 
in order to inherit eternal life. There's got to be something else going on in this text. Jesus is not telling him, if you do this and do this and do this and do this, and if you do enough of these things, then it will outweigh the bad things that you've already done or the bad person that you already are, and then you will make God happy. You will do enough good things. Listen to me. Doing good doesn't mean that you are good. Bad people do good things. Good people are not self-made. Good people are God-remade. Let me say that again. Good people are not self-made. They are God-remade. Trusting in God to remake you is the way in which you are made good, as in good with God, truly good. In fact, I think this is what's going to be said in Titus as well. Look, uh, Paul wrote a little letter to his friend Titus. And in that letter, it sounds like, he, it, it almost literally sounds like he is responding to this expert. He says, look what he says. He says, but when kindness, when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not, look at that, not by works of righteousness, which we have done. We've done good things, and you've done good things, Titus, and Paul's done good things, and Josh has done, Second Baptist, they've done a bunch of good things, but that's not what saves us. But, he says, according to his mercy, through the washing and the, look at these two re-words, remember? Good people are not self-made, good people are remade by God. By the regeneration that's bringing life to something that was dead and the renewal by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit remakes us by mercy. He poured out his spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ. This is achieved through the work of Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, mercy and grace through Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, is what saves us. Not good works. And then Paul says, so that we may become, look at this last phrase here. You can see it up there more clearly. But look at this last phrase. Heirs with the hope of eternal life. Isn't that, isn't that exactly what the expert asked? God, Jesus, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Life. Paul answers that, and Jesus answers it as well in his own way. But the idea here is it's not something you've done. It's not some accomplishment you've made, some ribbon, some trophy, some medal. It's not the star you got in Sunday school, your perfect attendance. It's not even, as important as it is, your baptism, or walking some aisle, or being connected with some church. It is God's mercy and grace through Jesus, meaning that if you trust Jesus Christ, then you will be saved. Trusting Jesus is what brings about salvation. Now, I know that this series is called Parables, and we're going to get all into the, um, the story that Jesus told. We're going to get all into the middle of that, but we cannot get to that point if you skim over this. And I really don't want us to skim over this. You can't earn being right with God. You can't do enough good to outweigh the bad that you have done. It's not a scale. The only answer is trusting Jesus to bring uh, life to you, to make you brand new. We're just broken that way. We are so broken that we can't help ourselves. We need Jesus to interject and to come and rescue us. And to be honest with you, that's what I hope that you will do today. 
I hope that you will respond right now where you are sitting, where you are listening, if you're online or if you're in the room right now where you are, in a room this full, there are people surely who have not yet trusted Jesus as their Savior. They know a lot about Jesus, but they haven't actually trusted him as their Savior. And so wherever you are, I would love for you to respond. If you want to ask a, a pastor, if you want to talk to a minister, look, just pull out your phone right now where you are, you're sitting there at home, you're watching on YouTube, our website, or Facebook. You go ahead and just text the word TALK to 501-377-9965, and that'll start a conversation with us. And a pastor or a minister will tell you our story about Jesus. I'm so excited to hear that this week one of our college students accepted Jesus as their Savior. And, and we love that story. We love being a part of that story. Man, I want to include you in that story as well. We cannot hear what Jesus is about to say without getting this settled. It all begins with a trust in Jesus Christ. So this is where we are. We're right here in this space where this man says, this expert of the law, he says, I know about God, but how do I trust God? What does it look like for my life to be lived out in such a way that resembles God's standards? How do I know? That's what he means by that whole eternal life concept. He's talking about, I know a ton about God, but how do I know that I'm actually living in a way that resembles that, that I'm carrying the culture, that I'm the standard that God wants me to be? And Jesus answers like Jesus answers. You know, often Jesus will uh, answer with a question or, I think this is cool, and this is really our whole series here, Jesus will say, you know, that's a great question. You want to hear a story? It's kind of how Jesus will often respond to people. And that's exactly what I'm going to share with you in just a minute, the story that Jesus told. But before we do, let's pray together. God, thank you for your gospel. Thank you for the good news that every person here, whether it's their first time in this room, whether they're out of town, they're just kind of hanging out with us this morning, college student, whatever it is, God, that you would offer to them the gospel, regardless of their age. They don't even have to know anything about this church. So all they need to know is that Jesus, the Savior of the world, has offered to them forgiveness, that he will accept them, that he will love them, that we are broken, and that we need Jesus. And that if any person, any person will respond, will accept, that you will save them. So God, I pray right now that you would do that in the hearts of many people here that are listening online, that are in the room. And God, that we would leave today with this... Uh, motivation, this fire, this passion to live that out, to do something about it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Jesus says, you answered right. You're supposed to love God. You're supposed to love your neighbor. Go do that. And the man, the Bible says, wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Now remember, he's not saying, I like, who's my neighbor so that he can uh, go, hey, look, neighbor, you know, like that kind of the Heidi, oh, good neighbor. He doesn't want to just identify the neighbor. He wants to actually know who's the person that I'm supposed to uh, uh, show that I love God to. That's the, that's the essence of the question there. Who exactly is this person that I am supposed to reveal my dedication to God to? And Jesus took up the question and he said to the man, there was a man, who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell into the hands of robbers, and they stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. Now, Jesus is a master storyteller. He's going to say a lot in just a few words. 
One of those words that he says a lot in is this whole concept of going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Everyone listening would have thought to themselves, you know, I've been on that trip. And uh, the trip's about 13 miles. It drops 3,000 feet in elevation. I said in the first service, 3,000 miles in elevation. That would just be a straight plummet. Uh, it wasn't like that. It's 3,000 feet, you know. And so, and it, it kind of winds and it goes down like you would go down any sort of uh, elevation drop like that. And there's rocks and cliffs. Everybody knew that there were robbers. It's a dangerous trek. Everybody knew about that trek. They're listening to that thing. Yeah, that's a, that's a bad place to be. Not only does it say that idea in their minds, but it would also say something implied about the man. The man is from Jerusalem, meaning that he is, what? He's Jew. That's what's implied in there. Everyone listening to that story, at this point, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho or thinking in their minds, yeah, that guy's like one of us and he's doing what we do. That guy's one of us and he's doing what we do and he gets himself into a tight spot because some robbers got him. The thing that we all fear is the thing that happened to this man. And next he says, and a priest happened to be going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. Two characters that we don't really have within our culture, right? Nobody here, you know, anybody run into their Levite this week at Walmart or anything? You just, you don't do that. We don't have Levites in your Baptist, so you don't have priests, you know, and so... We don't really have these things, and, and they do carry a lot of religious overtones to them, but I don't really think that's the point of the story that Jesus is trying to get across here. He's not really talking about this religion. He's talking about this culture. How do I live out like uh, being a kingdom citizen? That's what the man's trying to get at, and that's what Jesus is teaching here. The Levite and the priest were, they were two characters in their worldview who would carry the culture. They were the standard. If you loved God— and you wanted to live your life in a way that represented that, then you would look to the Levite. You would look to the priest. I thought about this in our own culture. Not so much religiously, but just culturally. Who are the characters within our culture that carry the culture? They're the kind of people that we look to and we, we just kind of assume that they embody the things that we believe are true and good and honest. We want to believe that. I think that um, basically, they would be uh, police officers and nurses. That's just what popped in my mind. Police officers and nurses, maybe teachers as well, military personnel, somebody like that. We, we believe that these people should, in their most true form, embody the culture that they will go out and they'll protect and they'll teach and they'll serve, those sort of things. That's, that's kind of the way we see it. Here in Conway, it's also anybody that works for Conway Corp. Those, uh, those are the other heroes that we, we really lift up there. I don't know why that is. If you're new, if you're not from this area, um, one of the strange things about Conway is that we really love our utility company. All right? And so um, we do. Anyways, so we've got, we've got teachers and Conway Corp linemen, that sort of stuff. And, and we really lift these people up and we view them when we see them in their perfect form, we think that they are supposed to be embodying the culture of everything that we hold as good and true and honest. This is the reason why when one of them fails in that, it makes national news. Because deep down in our core, that's not the way that that's supposed to be. They're supposed to be held to a higher standard. Whether that's fair or not, that's the reality. That we lift them up as this, uh, as this true and this perfect standard. 
We think of them as being totally pure on the inside and totally consistent on the outside, that they are the example for all of us. When Jesus mentions the priest and the Levite, he is saying that kind of person in their worldview. These two people are the ones who are supposed to carry that culture forward. They are the example to everyone. But like I said, Jesus is a master storyteller. So he's going to throw in a a twist in the story. Jesus always, every time Jesus tells a story, there's always this part in the story where you, if you were listening, would go, wait, did he just, did he just say, and he did, but a Samaritan on his journey came up to him. This is the twist. This is the Jesus twist in the story. Everyone thinks that the Levite and the priest, they're good. They're the gold standard. They're the people. No one listening to this story would have thought to themselves, the Samaritan, he's the gold standard, let alone the God standard. No one would have thought that. No one would have even assumed it. Now, in the context of this debate, I want to be very clear on what Jesus is trying to paint here and what he's trying to point out here. If you've ever heard the story of the Good Samaritan before, you should understand that the the conflict between the Jews and the Samaritans was deep. Um, Jews didn't like Samaritans. Samaritans didn't like Jews. And their mamas didn't like each other. And their grandmamas didn't like each other either. Everybody didn't like one another. And it was racial, and it was religion, and it was all mixed together in this big bowl of history. Okay, it was complex, and it was hard to break these things apart. And all of that's true. But more than that, for the purposes of this story, for the purposes of this debate, Jesus is not positing another religion. He's not positing another race. Jesus is putting out there a person whom no one would assume would act like the good God. This is a bad guy. Regardless of what he's doing in the story, this is a bad guy. Not somebody that I would want to model my life after. And yet, and yet that's exactly what happens here. That's exactly what's going on in the story. Look at it again. It says, But a Samaritan on his journey, minding his own business, came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. Now remember, compassion means that you make a choice to do good for the other person, even if it's a sacrifice to yourself. That's what compassion is. And this is what it looks like. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds. Now, I I don't think he really had a first aid kit. I'm imagining that he probably like ripped off a piece of his own coat, his own cloak, and kind of bandaged the guy's wounds, took care of him as best he could, pouring on olive oil and wine. And then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn uh, to take care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii. That's a lot of money for them. And he gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra that you spend. Clearly, this guy is sacrificial. He's caring for the other person. He's loving the other person. In other words, the Samaritan acts the way that you would expect God to act. If God was walking down that road, he does what the Samaritan does. But Jesus does something else in the story that at first you just kind of read through. It just seems like a detail. But Jesus does something in the story. He's noticed this part right here. He says, he went over to him. That doesn't really sound like a big deal, right? It's just part of the story. Of course he's going to go over to him. But Jesus does this twice. Did you notice? But a Samaritan on his journey came up to him. It's the same phrase, 
just said a little bit differently. Jesus is emphasizing out of all the cool things that the Samaritan does, out of all the cool things that this bad guy, this, this not standard person does, Jesus emphasizes that he went over to him. He went close by to him. And this is intentional because what Jesus is trying to do is conflict it with these two guys. It's the conflict what's going on because a priest happened to be going down the road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and he saw him, passed by on the other side. Jesus says it twice so that you will clearly hear it and you will clearly know what's going on, that this guy shows compassion by going over to the man. I've told you guys before about Jackie's dog. Jackie has this dog, and um, I have a dog, and Jackie has a dog. My dog used to be Jackie's dog, but it was a hand-me-down. So now I have her, and um, Jackie has Landry. It's this little, like, curly-headed, rusted-colored uh, mutt. Um, they call it—if um, you put— oodle on the name of a dog now. You can charge more. Um, we used to call that a mutt. And um, so she's got one of those. And um, I don't like it. It's named Landry. I contributed that part, but I don't like that thing. And um, for various reasons. When I walk into the room, he always kind of like slithers away real fast. We've never had a conflict. We've never gone to blows or anything like that. But I think he just knows I don't like him. I don't know how he knows. Maybe because I tell him every time I see him. Um, but he, he walks away. And in the morning, nearly every morning, when I'm reading my Bible, I'm drinking my coffee, her dog will come over, and even though when I see him, he snakes away, but every morning he comes over, and he puts his little head right here on my knee. He looks up at me with those big eyes, you know, and, um, and uh, he tries to distract me from reading of God's Word, because he's Satan, and he, does, he doesn't want me to read the Bible. He'll take his little claws that are all, you know, claws fanged like, like demons have. And he reaches out and he grabs my arm and he tries to put it like, he tries to put my hand over him. And, and uh, he and I have not liked each other some, from the beginning, so I ignore him. But Jackie, uh, you know, she'll go, she'll, she'll look at him and she goes, you know what he's trying to do? And I'm like, what? You know, she goes, he's saying, love me. Just love me. That's what she says. She says it in her own voice. But, you know, it's like, love me, just love me, you know, which I— she doesn't see that he's distracting me from the Word of God. Me and Jesus are having a moment here. And of course, my dog's over there letting us commune, me and the Lord. But this dog is trying to separate because he's from the pit. And so he's doing that. But here's the deal. I think Jackie's right. I think that dog is trying to say, just love me. Just, 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 just be friends, me and you. Let's bury the hatchet and all that stuff that I left on the carpet, and be friends, you and me. Let's just be friends that way. I think that's what he's trying to say, but he can't say it because he can't speak English. But he's saying what we all know. Close is care. Close by is compassion. Close is love. The dog is showing me love. He is expressing compassion in the way that dogs express that. So as a church, let me ask you this question. See how compassion looks like when Jesus says he had compassion, he went over. Let me ask you as a church, what are, the, what are the distances, what are the gaps that we need to close? What are the distances that we need to bridge? 
What are those gaps that we need to make sure between the person who needs Jesus and Jesus that we're going to go stand in that gap and we're going to do everything we can to pull those two things together? Let me give you three real quick. The first one I think is the most obvious of all, and that is the distance between where I am standing and the universities. I believe with everything in me that God has put this church in this spot, in this city, in this time to reach university students with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sometimes God has to communicate through writing things down. Sometimes he speaks through prophets. And sometimes he just looks at us and goes, what else did you think I was doing, you know? I put you there to reach them. There's 46 feet distance between our campus and the University of Central Arkansas. And many of us know Jesus. We're a church. That's what we are. When we die, we're going to go to heaven. We live our lives walking with Jesus, and many of them don't. So they are the priority. Reaching them for Jesus is the priority. We're going to do what it takes to reach college students with the gospel of Jesus Christ because that's why he put us here. Half of them will stay in our community and the other half that we reach, half of you guys will stay here and that's awesome. We love that. But the other half, we hope that you will go spread like, uh, like um, I don't know, you know those little packing peanuts? If you threw it up in front of a fan and it blows it all over the place, that you will spread all over the world as missionaries with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's our hope. That's what God has done to separate the gap between the college students and Jesus. Another one is Greenbrier. I believe that God has given us an opportunity for us to go up there and partner with the families and the people that are a part of Second Family that are living in Greenbrier and Wooster and Spring Hill who, who can't bring their neighbors and their friends to a church that's over 20 minutes away, that we're going to go up there and we're going to partner with them. Why? To close the gap between the people that are moving out to Greenbrier and Jesus. That's the gap that Jesus wants us to do. He wants us to go over there. He wants us to go over to the people. The other third group of people is that person, that individual, that person in your life that God has put in your life so that they will hear you tell them about Jesus. Every person in this room, God has put somebody in your life that he wants you to tell about the good news of Jesus. It could be the distance between your front doors, like a literal neighbor. It could be the distance between your offices your cubicles here, her cubicles there, your dorms, the kids you teach, the kids you coach, or a family member. There's somebody in your life that God is wanting you to close that distance. We need to always, as a church, always be about closing the distance, of bridging the gap, of making sure that we are going over and helping people to meet Jesus in the way that he intended us to meet them. Jesus began his answer to the debate with a question. And then he responds or ends it with another question. He says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the one, the one who showed mercy, the guy says. And Jesus says, yeah, you're right. So go and do the same. See, the expert already showed that he had a devotion to God. He's an expert in God's law. He was already devoted to him in the best that he knew how to be devoted to him. He already knew a lot about God. What Jesus is telling him is now that you need to go and do. Look, here's the irony that we miss sometimes when we read this story. This is the part that really kind of slips past us. The expert was right. The expert, when he asked Jesus and Jesus asked him a question, two times when Jesus asked him a question, he got him right. 
He would have got a hundred on this exam, a hundred on this quiz. His problem wasn't knowing about God. It was doing what God told him to do. And in his not doing that, he revealed that he didn't really know God as a father. He knew about God. He just didn't personally know God. And that's revealed in that he didn't do what God told him to do. Here's the other thing. This is a fictional story, but I believe if Jesus was sitting there at the gateway to Jerusalem and the Levite walked by or the priest walked by and Jesus is like, hey, excuse me, just for a second, can I ask you a question? And they say, sure. And he says, what, is, what does God expect of us? What does God expect of us? Both the Levite, the priest would have given the exact same answer that the expert did. They would have both said without any sort of hesitation, oh, it's easy. Deuteronomy 6, love God, love people. Super easy question. Jesus is like, thanks. And they just walk on, proving the point that all three of them knew. But these two, the Levite and the priest, they knew the right answers. They just didn't do anything with it. They didn't do anything to help the man. They did not close the gap. Here's your one key. This is your takeaway this morning. The thing that uh, I hope that we will walk out of here and do. This is not just a knowing thing. Christianity is a doing thing. It's not just about knowing all the right answers. It's about doing things. You can know all the right answers. You can be really good at Bible trivia, maybe even an expert, you know, like this guy in the story. But if you don't do anything with it, then what good is that? It all starts with truly trusting Jesus, which I am convinced that many of us do. I'm talking to Second Baptist Church of Conway here. Online and in person, nearly everyone that's listening to me right now would say, yes, I trust Jesus. You trust he is who he said he is. You trust he did what he said he would do. You trust that he will do what he promised to do. That's not our challenge. That's not our struggle. Our struggle is... We often don't do what he said to do. We've got all of this, and we're not doing any of this. And it all starts with closing the gap or bridging that distance. Earlier on in our, our, our parenthood, uh, we had one of those situations that a lot of parents have, that fear that, hey, it's even traumatic to even think about. One of our sons, while we were eating dinner, one of our sons began to choke. And if you're a parent, you know, that's just terrifying. It's just immediately terrifying. And, and the funny thing about it, or the, the, the unusual thing about it, is Jackie and I both remember it happening. We both remember exactly what happened after that. But for the life of us, we cannot remember which kid it was that was choking. You just can't. Which is also very true to being a parent, you know. If you line all three of them up here in front of me, I have a very hard time on even remembering their names. And so I can't remember what happened. But I do remember, I can't remember what happened. I just can't remember which one. The child started making noises, kind of odd noises. Face changes, you know, you can tell. They're in distress. This has happened to you. Some of you parents right now, you were like, oh, I hate the feeling of what you're telling me right now because we have felt that, you know. Jackie stands up and rips that child up out of his chair as fast as she could. And I ripped that child away from her as fast as I could. I said, unfit mother, give me that baby. I didn't really say that. That's a, that's a movie quote. I would never say that to her, uh, especially in that situation. Anyways, I took the child, supporting his, his chin, you know, his neck like this. I rolled him over on my knee and I hit his back. Just one time, thankfully, that's all I had to do. It dislodged whatever was in there. He starts crying. We're crying. 
like don't know what's going on here. It's scary. It's traumatic for us. I know for a fact that Jackie knew exactly what to do. I know that she would have done great. I didn't need to pull that baby away from her. I just did that because I'm a male and, and we do stuff like that, you know? I didn't need to do it. She knew exactly what to do. I knew exactly what to do. And I know that we both knew exactly what to do. You know why? Because a few months earlier, or quite a few months, maybe a year or so earlier, when I was the student minister at First Baptist Church of Mansfield, where Lucy was, and Jackie was the uh, assistant to the worship minister at Mansfield, the whole staff had to take CPR. We went in and we took CPR and we, we practiced on the dummy, you know, on the floor, like the office episode. We did that and staying alive and all that. And then, um, and then we practiced with the little baby dummy. And I remember thinking at the time, this is, this is so lame. Why, why, I'm the student minister. Why do I have to practice CPR on an infant? I'm never around infants. This is ridiculous. Turns out one day, I would be around an infant that was choking. And I knew what to do. And then I did it. Both Jackie and I knew exactly what to do. But it would have turned out entirely different. It would have been completely tragic if all we did was know what to do. And then we didn't do it. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.